In the early 1960s, Johnny Cash toured with the Carter family, and they would sing a number of different songs, but in this particular tour, there was one that they always sang, and that was the old spiritual, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And in the one particular instance, you can still find the YouTube video, Johnny Cash and the Carter family are on a television show, and you have these horns playing in the background very softly in a funeral-like dirge, and Johnny Cash is, is narrating uh, what happened uh, at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus, particularly, particularly what happened when the guards were gambling for the robes of Jesus. And as that music played, Cash deliberately and methodically and intentionally said these words. And there was one Roman soldier, legend and tradition has it, who carried the robe away. And for years after that, he was like a man who had lost his mind. He would turn to this one and that one, and he would say, were you there when we crucified him? Were you there? They go into the song, and they sing those haunting words. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble tremble. One of the reasons why Luke, this gospel writer, this historical biography, uh, biographer of Jesus, has been writing is to actually bring us to this point in the life of Christ. For people like you and me who weren't there when Jesus was crucified, he wants to bring us there as he tells his story. In fact, he's going to tell his story in such a way that he's going to highlight for us a number of people who were there at the cross and help us to, to see and to learn from their experience and their reactions and the things that they said. And in the process of this, he's going to highlight some things that are really quite ironic. And as we get ready to jump into that, let me just remind you of how he started his gospel out. He said these words at the very beginning. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from, um, who from the first were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke began his gospel by telling us that many people were talking about this and seeking to compile um, an, uh, an authoritative a gospel of Jesus, a historical account of Jesus. And so he investigated and talked to those people who were the original eyewitnesses. And he compiled this letter, uh, this gospel account, and he's addressing it to Theophilus, who may have been the underwriter of the expense for this. Um, most likely he was some kind of Roman official because this uh, title, oh, Most Excellent, was oftentimes used to address uh, people in authority. But nevertheless, he's writing this so that you may know for sure, with certainty, the things that it happened to Jesus. And so we're going to call our study today the crucifixion of Jesus because we're going to dial into that moment when Jesus was nailed to that old Roman cross. And as we get ready to look at the account today, let me just pause and ask you to join me in prayer as we, as we go back into this story and ask the Lord to be the one who teaches us this day. Lord, as we gather this day we come in here from many different backgrounds, some of us very familiar with the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. For others of us, perhaps we've seen accounts of it on TV or maybe just don't know that much about it. Wherever we are, 
Would you help us to, to understand it afresh this day? Maybe even for the very first time. As we look at all these different people who are gathered there when they crucified our Lord. Help us to see uh, beyond just the outward appearance of things to the deeper message of the gospel and its radical implications for each and every one of us this day. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I alluded to in the prayer, some of you may be very familiar with this story. And I want you to do the best you can to kind of wipe your memory clean, (laughs) to look at this again for the very first time through the eyes of Luke as he writes this. And I think as we do that, we're going to see some things that are really surprising for us as we unpack what happens here. And so I'm going to actually start in verse 13, even though we looked at this a little bit last week, to give a little bit of the context of what's going on. Jesus has been arrested by the religious authorities. He's already gone through a beating with them. They present him to Pilate as this revolutionary king seeking to uh, stir up an insurrection. Pilate has already examined him, found him not guilty of what they're saying. They send him off to Herod, who had jurisdiction over Jesus, being a Galilean. Herod sent him back to Pilate not finding him guilty. And so this is where we pick up in chapter 23, verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by this man. I will therefore punish him and release him. Already multiple times, Pilate has had interaction with Jesus as the person in charge of controlling the peace of that part of the world. He didn't find any reason to fear Jesus. And so we're told in verse 18 that when Pilate said this to them, They cried out together. They all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. We learn from the other Gospels that Pilate had a tradition of releasing to them someone who had been arrested. And this was probably his way of of kind of helping satisfy the crowds because every year at the time of Passover, there were always talks about insurrection, about when God would come and overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel as her own sovereign nation and really the queen among nations. And so Pilate, perhaps in a gesture to kind of keep the crowds happy, would release to them a prisoner. And so he, he offers to them Barabbas, a man who had been arrested for the very thing that they accused Jesus of doing, which is leading an insurrection, but also for murder. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Luke, helps us understand some of the significance of what their choice was. Either Barabbas or Jesus must die, he says. Either the one who stands for violent revolution, which Jesus has opposed from the beginning, or the one who has offered the way of peace. Philip Ryken, noting this moment, says the Pontius Pilate had a serious problem. What was he going to do with Jesus? He does not think he's guilty. But the crowds are beginning to stir. And maybe he's worried that there's a riot that's going to take place. But he doesn't think that he has grounds to execute Jesus. And so what is he going to do? 
Verse 20. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. See the crowds now being stirred up by the religious leaders as Pilate is seeking to release this man to them. And they didn't want to crucify Jesus themselves because they didn't want to take the blame. They got, they're working the angle trying to get Pilate to do it for them. And so now when Pilate says, what shall I do? All they can do is shout and try to shout him down. Crucify, crucify him. Hear the crowds in an increasingly deafening roar. Crucify, crucify him. Pilate a third time said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him. Pilate, thinking that maybe if they just want to see Jesus suffer, would be satisfied at Jesus receiving a beating. He knows that they have already beaten him down once, that is the religious leaders. But maybe if, if Rome does it officially, they will then be satisfied. But maybe sensing a weakness in Pilate, they're having nothing of it. If they, he's willing to, to beat an innocent man, then maybe they could push him a little bit further. We're told from the Gospel of, of John that Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. So now they're manipulating him, saying if you let Jesus go, you're going to be in trouble with Caesar because he's claiming to be a rival king to Caesar. And come on, Pilate, you know what you're supposed to do when that happens. Rome is an expert at doing this. They execute rivals to Roman power. Back to the Gospel of Luke, verse 23. They were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Here he's caving. Not so much the political pressure, but just to the pressure of trying to keep the crowds happy. Pilate knows he's done nothing wrong, deserving death. But he also doesn't want a riot, especially during Passover when Israel is celebrating their liberation from slavery in Egypt. And so what is he going to do with Jesus? He decides that their demand to have Jesus crucified should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Here for the second time, Luke tells us that Barabbas, who was guilty of the very thing that they wanted to frame Jesus for, insurrection, potential murder, this is one of the ironies in this account. Pilate lets him go. And Jesus is carried away. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark gives us another little part of this story, which is really interesting. He says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. In my research on what a Roman battalion was, that's about 500 men. 
480 divided in groups of roughly around 80. They probably weren't all in the palace. They're probably guarding the palace because the riot's about to happen. But there's a, a show of force, nonetheless, against Jesus. And we're told they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a staff and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And you know, the gospel writer kind of glosses over the fact that Jesus was scourged. This was brutal. This was probably the punishment that people feared worse. That is next to execution by a Roman cross. When the Romans scourged people, they never did it to Romans. They only did it to foreigners, to slaves. But when they did that, they would take out this, this um, flagellum is one of the ways it's described. And it's just this, basically this stick about 12 to 18 inches long that has straps of leather with knots woven into that leather, with pieces of bone and rock woven into that leather. leather. And, and they would strike the victim and that whip would embed itself into the flesh, and then they would rip it back out. And even though Luke moves past this fast, and Mark, who I just quoted, moves past it fast, we should just contemplate this for a moment. Jesus has already been beaten up by the religious authorities, and now he undergoes an official scourging by countless Roman uh, soldiers and so see him in this moment with his hands tied around a post and this, this whip, perhaps multiple ones, with soldiers on all sides, digging into the flesh of Jesus, ripping it out. The brutality of this is beyond imagination. You read accounts by modern physicians who talk about what would have happened. Deep bruises would take place as Jesus flesh is, is ripped out as these balls of leather hit his body. And in, in the Torah, the Jewish law, they had this law about how, how, how far you could take a discipline of, of a person. And in their account, you cannot lash a person more than 40 times. Rome had no such quibbles. They would do it as long as they wanted to. When, when Rome scourged a victim... Their goal was to take him within an inch of his life. In fact, the head centurion would be on guard, keeping an eye on the victim to make sure that he did not die from the loss of blood, from the pain. So his job was to make sure the victim was still alive because Rome wanted to finish it off with the humiliation of the cross. And so see Jesus being beaten, the crown of thorns in his head, what pain he must have endured in this moment. I try to put myself in that situation and imagine what it would have been like with perhaps dozens or more Roman soldiers around me, beating me, mocking me, spitting on me. It's inconceivable. The prophet Isaiah said his appearance was so disfigured 
that he did not look like a man. And his form did not resemble a human being. Can you imagine someone being beaten so badly that they're scarcely recognizable as a human being anymore? Mark finishes his description of this by saying, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So Pilate and the religious leaders are there. These Roman soldiers are there. Luke's going to introduce us to another character who was there when they crucified our Lord. In verse 26, we're told that as they led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. Now imagine this man who's been out in the country. We don't know if that means he's coming from another country or he's on a pilgrimage or maybe he was inside the city, went out for whatever reason, and is coming back in. But this, the soldier sees this man and they have him carry the cross of Jesus. Why are they doing that? Remember, Jesus has been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been through an all-night trial He's been sent back and forth, the victim of beatings and and mockery, and he has hardly any strength left. So they grab this man, who all of a sudden is thrust into the story of Jesus, and he bears the cross for Jesus as they continue to lead Jesus on the way. I wonder what horror this man must have felt in that moment. (laughs) No one wanted to, to touch a Roman cross, let alone carry one let alone carry one that already is is dripping in blood and perhaps pieces of flesh from the back of Jesus. What if the Romans disapproved of what he did and and wanted to, to take out some of their fury on him? We're not told really what the rest of Simon of Cyrene's story is, but that had to have affected him the rest of his life. I wonder if he became a follower of Jesus once Jesus came back from the dead on the third day and sent his disciples out with the good news of the forgiveness of sins, I wonder if he told that story over and over again of the horror of carrying that cross. But really, what an honor it must have been. I don't know about you, but as I think about that situation and and what they're doing to Jesus, and I was reflecting on it this week, and seeing Jesus struggle on the way to that, I would want to go and help carry that cross for him. He's already suffered enough. He's already been humiliated and degraded enough. And if I could just help in that moment to ease his suffering, I would want to do that. So Simon of Cyrene was another person who was there when they crucified our Lord. Luke tells us about some more people. There followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Oh, this, this must have been a comfort, no doubt. Have all these angry faces looking at Jesus and these religious leaders and civil authorities and Roman soldiers just looking at him with intense hatred. And here are some women who in their kindness are mourning and lamenting for Jesus. But Jesus is concerned for them. He says to them, Turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. 
For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. In Israel, this would have been thought of as a curse. Because in Israel, the greatest blessing is to have a family. That's the way they view reality. That's the way they they view the continuation of their people. But now what was viewed as a curse, they now say, will actually be a blessing. And then Jesus says, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is telling these these daughters of Jerusalem, to, to weep for themselves, to weep for their children. He, he foresees a day when great tribulation will come upon this city and they will be begging for death. And then Jesus has this cryptic saying, for if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? What does he mean by that? Wood that is green is wood that still has life within it. Even if it's been cut down and has been living, while it's still green, it still has life flowing in it. But of course, it eventually becomes dry. N.T. Wright, again, I think is very helpful in helping us understand the implications of what Jesus is saying. He writes, The contrast between green and dry wood supplied Jesus with one of his darkest sayings. Jesus wasn't a rebel leader. He wasn't dry wood, or dry wood timber ready for burning. On the contrary, he was green wood. His mission was about peace and repentance, about God's reconciling kingdom for Israel and the nations. But he is saying, if they, that is the Romans, are even doing this to him, what would they do when Jerusalem is filled with young hotheads, firebrands eager to do anything they can to create violence and mayhem. If the Romans crucify the Prince of Peace, what will they do to genuine warlords? Jesus, of course, is is looking into the future. He's already wept over the city of Jerusalem, saying to them, if only you had known the way of peace, but now it is hidden from you. And the desire for revolution, and the the desire for, for war with Rome, They were itching for that. And Jesus sees with what the Romans are doing to him, and he's just one person, how much greater terror will it be when the entire city is surrounded? Which, if you know your history, know that happened in AD 67 to 70. The military leader of Rome, Titus, surrounded what was becoming a haven for insurrection and the threatening of revolt against Rome. They surrounded Jerusalem, laid siege to it for three years, two years really into it, starving out people to begin with. And Josephus tells us that so great was the famine that mothers turned to cannibalism in order to survive. Jesus is just a couple chapters before told his people When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let those who are out in the country country not enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, 
and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Josephus, the the Jewish Roman historian, in recounting what happened, said no other city endured such miseries. So even when Jesus is on the way to the cross and these women are weeping for him, lamenting and mourning, Jesus is thinking about the fate of Jerusalem and what will happen with his people wanting to be on a war path with Rome and what will happen. Luke moves on quickly and tells us about some other people who were there when they crucified our Lord. He says in verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That word criminals, I looked this up in three different Greek dictionaries. First entry is always evildoers. They let out two evildoers to be put to death with Jesus. And we're told in verse 33, when they came to the place of the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, the evildoers, one on his right and one on his left. That's where you get these iconic paintings and pictures of Jesus in the center with two criminals, two evildoers on either side of him, Jesus being numbered with them, Jesus being counted as one of them. Luke just says they they crucified Jesus. He doesn't really spend much time going into detail. His point is to to show that this is where everything has been heading so so far in the story of Jesus. But let's just take a moment and reflect here. We have an English word, excruciating. We we reserve this word for those moments where we're in the greatest of pain. It literally means out of the cross. Suffering like it was from the cross. And we may be exaggerating when we're saying we have an excruciating headache, But sometimes it feels like it couldn't be any worse. Excruciating, experiencing pain, suffering, mental anguish, torture. Cicero, who lived before Jesus, said the crucifixion was the cruelest and most disgusting penalty. Josephus, who lived just after Jesus, said it was the most pitiable of deaths. It was brutal. What's interesting is, is centuries of reflection on the crucifixion by Jesus, of Jesus on that cross has led to some great poetry. Think of Thomas Kelly's poem that says, Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. This the Christ by man rejected. Yes, my soul, tis he, tis he. Or Bernard or Clairvaux, who lived about a thousand years of the time of Jesus, wrote, O sacred head, now wounded, with grief and shame weighed down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. Or Frederick Faber's more recent hymn, O come and mourn with me a while, O come near to the Savior's side, O come together, let us mourn, Jesus our Lord is crucified. I was thinking about our service this week and 
the song that we sang right before we had this opportunity to open the scriptures. Hallelujah for the cross. I think anyone in the first century who heard you say something like that would think you were out of your mind. No one is thankful to God for this instrument of torture and death. And so why Jesus is nailed to this cross, experiencing excruciating pain, he has other people on his mind. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What beautiful words from Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How can Jesus pray this? Didn't they know exactly what they were doing? Didn't Pilate know exactly the fact that he was putting an innocent man to death? Didn't these Jewish leaders who conspired with Rome knew exactly what they were doing? I mean, we've been watching them step by step plotting to take out Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then we're told... They, that is, the soldiers, cast lots to divide his garments. I was 52 years old, which is how old I am right now, when I realized this was not the reason why, or the reason they did is not the reason why. I've always thought, because soldiers are not the highest paid people, they're gambling for Jesus' clothing because they want his clothing. But that's not the case. Think about this for a second. It can't be the case. They may have been poor, <laughs> but the clothing they took off of Jesus so they could nail him to that cross naked was covered in blood and bits of flesh. What a disgusting garment that was. Why are they gambling for this? We're not told, but I think they want the trophy. I think they want this robe so they can boast. <laughs> they certainly don't want to wear it. Nevertheless, they, they cast lots to divide his garments. And we're told in verse 35, the people stood by watching. But the rulers, that is the Jewish ruling authorities, scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. I mean, you can almost hear the sarcasm dripping from their lips. They got exactly what they wanted, this man who claimed to be the Christ, but who said that they were going to be excluded from the kingdom of God, that is the religious authorities, unless they repented and followed him. <laughs> now they got exactly what they wanted. They manipulated the Roman system to get Jesus put to death, and so they're sitting there mocking and scoffing him. <laughs> he saved others. Here's another piece of irony. They know that Jesus has saved others. <laughs> It, it, they're accusing themselves, even as they say that. Jesus has healed people. He has brought people back from the dead. He saved others. We should worship him. But they just use that as a reason to mock him. Let him save himself if he is the Christ. If he's the Christ of God, if he's his chosen one, God wouldn't let his Messiah be crucified. The soldiers who were there when they crucified our Lord were told mocked him, coming up 
and offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Kings have cupbearers whose job is to bring the best wine. And here are these soldiers in a cruel twist of proper protocol act as cupbearers to this would-be king. Instead of giving him the best wine, they, they give him sour wine. Have you ever smelled sour wine? It's disgusting. I have this story. I just wasn't planning on saying this. <clears throat> when I lived in Peru, working down there among uh, some, some wonderful people, they served wine at communion. But because these churches were poor, they would sometimes take the leftover wine, put it back in the bottle, and save it for next week. I remember we were doing an ordination service for one of our, our young ministers. And when it came to the time of communion, we had these trays set out like we have them up here, but we had cloths over them. And so when it came time, the person officiating um, gave the words of the institution, and I was helping, and so I went and took the, the cloth off of the cups, and I just smell, smelled this ransom, rancid sour wine. And I mean, I was praying at that moment, Lord, help me not throw up in this in a second. But here these, these soldiers are offering Jesus not the best of wine, which he was worthy of, but sour wine, mocking him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also this inscription we're told over Jesus, this is the king of the Jews. And then we're told about those criminals again. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Here's another one of those ironic moments in this story. He wanted Jesus to do something, to save them. Not knowing in that very moment, Jesus was saving people. He was purchasing salvation. He was allowing the curse to fall upon him so that people like you and me might receive forgiveness before God. Jesus, in fact, was in the very process of saving people. But then we're told by Luke that the other criminal, the other evildoer, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since, we are, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. If you're familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that in, in some of the other gospels, we're told that this other criminal at first had joined in in the mockery of Jesus. Can you imagine just the, the contempt? You're, you're literally in excruciating pain, fighting for breath, but you're still filled with anger and hate. Did you find your fleeting breath to be useful in pouring contempt on someone else who's crucified next to you? What insanity that is. But something happened along the way, and we're not told what probably because no one had a chance to ask him. But maybe it was this, this man hearing Jesus say to those who are mocking him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Maybe they're using their last breaths to, to curse the crowd and cursing one another, cursing Jesus. But maybe they're seeing Jesus speak kindly. Whatever happened, there was a shift in him. So when the other criminal starts getting on Jesus again, using his fleeting breast to, to rail him, 
This man decides he needs to be rebuked. He said, this man has done nothing wrong. And then, and what has got to be one of the most insightful moments of clarity ever into who Jesus was. This criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If you're familiar with this story, it's almost impossible to understand the shock of what this man just said. First of all, in the Gospel of Luke, hardly anyone calls Jesus by his name. I mean, Luke does this, he's narrating it. But over and over again, people use the title rabbi. Sometimes they use the Son of God. Sometimes they use Christ, teacher, master. But hardly anyone uses the name of Jesus. But the first time we heard about it was when the angel appeared to Joseph and told him he was going to have this child. He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The very name of Jesus means God saves. So in a sense, when he calls out to Jesus, he's like, hey, God saves. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But notice this, this word when. I wonder if the people listening to this just thought he must have lost it. How is a man nailed to a cross going to inherit a kingdom? But he nevertheless says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Something happened, some moment of insight was granted to this man where he understood that nailed to him was literally the king of the Jews. The one who would inherit this kingdom that would fill the earth. He says, remember me. This man had nothing to offer Jesus. In fact, he was an evildoer. If Jesus is holy and righteous, then maybe the thing he should do is not remember this man. But in this moment, he says, Jesus, remember me. What an incredible statement of faith. What's going on here? May I suggest to you, my friends, that this criminal next to Jesus is enthroning Jesus as the true king. Something that Herod didn't do, something that Pilate didn't do, something that the religious authorities didn't do, something the soldiers did not do. Here in this moment, this man, nailed to the cross, is recognizing the true identity of Jesus. And he wants Jesus to remember him. And as incredible as that is, it's only surpassed by what Jesus says next. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Notice he didn't just say, today you will be with me in paradise, or today you will be in paradise. He starts out, truly I say to you. And if you're a reader of the Gospels, you know that this is the way of people highlighting and saying, listen, pay attention to what I'm about to say. Truly I say to you, today you will be in paradise. Paradise being the very place that the souls of saints go to as they await what will be the resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. He says, today you will be in paradise. But it gets even better for this man. <laughs> today you will be with me in paradise. I wonder if Jesus had a wry smile on his face. 
Or maybe he was just so overcome with love and compassion that it was just expressive on his face. I don't know. I wish Luke would have told us what he saw on the face of Jesus. But here Jesus recognizes the fact that death does not have the final word. So Johnny Cash asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And if we were there, Luke tells us, we would have seen all these things going on. We would have seen a man nailed to the cross. But my friends, something deeper was going on. Hang with me for just a few more moments. Something deeper was going on here. Yes, we would have seen the butcher of Jesus, the torture of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. We would see his life expiring. But everything we could see in that moment was not all that was going on. We're told in the words that we read earlier in, the script, in, the, in our service. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. There's something else going on behind the scenes than just mere political machinations. God is at work with Jesus being the substitute for people like you and me, placing upon him what we deserved. The scripture goes on and says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God was at work in this situation the death and crucifixion of Jesus. And as Isaiah continues, my servant will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their sins. Jesus, the righteous one, is dying for the unrighteous, people like you and me. And he bears our sins so that we can become righteous in him. Just a moment, we're going to sing the traditional version of Man of Sorrows, and it has this wonderful line, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When Luke takes us back here to the crucifixion of Jesus, he wants us to see that in our place condemned he stood. Why? So that we can receive forgiveness and reconciliation with the Father. Let me just, as I close this up here, just highlight that prayer of Jesus one more time. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Who's he praying for in this moment? Who is Jesus praying for in this moment? No doubt he's praying for those people who, at that moment, nailed him to the cross. No doubt he's praying for the religious leaders who are so consumed with hatred for him. But it's kind of nonspecific, isn't it? We're not told exactly who Jesus is praying for here. In my study here, I was led to a message that Charles Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist minister in London, um, once gave. And uh, he said this. He says, I love this prayer also because of the indistinctness of it. In other words, it doesn't define who Jesus is praying for. And Spurgeon says, that's one of the reasons I love it. It is, Father, forgive them. He does not say, Father, forgive the soldiers who have nailed me here. He includes them. Neither does he say, Father, forgive the people who are beholding me. 
Now, there's the crowds there. He means them. Neither does he say, Father, forgive sinners in ages to come who will sin against me. But he means them. Jesus does not mention them by any accusing name. Father, forgive my enemies. Father, forgive my murderers. No, there is no word of accusation upon those dear lips. Father, forgive them. Now, into that pronoun, them, I feel that I can crawl. Can you get in there? Oh, by a humble faith, appropriate the cross of Christ by trusting in it and get into that big little word, them. Isn't that amazing? When Johnny Cash asked the question, were you there when they crucified my Lord? In one sense, no, we're living 2,000 years later. But in another sense, yes. Friends, especially those of you who embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he no doubt had you there in his heart with him when they crucified him to that cross. No doubt he was referring to those of us who need forgiveness by sinning against him. When we get that, we can say with Paul, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. When we think about what Jesus did on that cross, he loved me and gave himself for me. He was thinking of me. He loved me and gave himself for me. And as we'll sing, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Mercy Hill Church, may you see in the crucified Jesus the true King of glory, and may you receive from him the forgiveness of sins that he was dying to give.